Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So, welcome to the second episode of the Core Kinetic uh, podcast, and if we didn't bore you too much with the first episode, um, then you're back and listening for the second, which is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, this time I am joined by uh, Austin Baraki. I hope I said that right. Yeah, yeah, that works. <laughs> I have spent my entire career butchering other people's names of research papers and yeah. what have you. So, so look, you're just you're you're in a long list of um, of, of other folks that I've pissed off along the way. So, Austin, could you just uh, give us a little bit of an introduction um, to who you are, what you do, etc. Yeah, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, happy to be here. So yeah, I'm Austin Baraki. I'm a, actually a physician, so uh, a little bit s- sometimes out of place in this scene as I experienced when I went to your course and uh, <laughs> I was the only MD there. Everybody else was PTs and chiros and uh, athletic trainers and such. But this uh, this is a field that I'm very interested in. I'm an internal medicine physician, assistant professor of medicine at my institution. I work at an academic hospital. I work primarily inpatient medicine, but I do some outpatient primary care type consultation work. And then I also work with a company called Barbell medicine, where we try to promote uh, kind of exercise and, and other various other behavior change uh, methods for uh, improving uh, public health outcomes. Excellent. And, and as uh, Austin said, we met, we met in sunny Texas. Yes, yes, up in Dallas. Yeah, on, on one of my mer- merry travels, we were at Jared Hall's uh, clinic, yeah. as I remember. And um, yeah, we had a fun weekend. And I, I remember, and Jared picked up the bill at dinner. He, he was, sure did. <laughs> one of my favorite experience, my one always my favorite experience at dinner is when someone else picks up the bill. <laughs> um, but I think what we were going to talk about, and I think that, that it would be good to have a, a different perspective on this, is just talk about kind of back pain. Um, I know back pain is one of these things that tends to actually span doctors and it spans everyone involved yeah. with human beings. So it's one of these kind of ubiquitous ubiquitous things and i know you guys over at barbell medicine and i got to meet your friend or your colleague michael amato i probably butchered that as well um a couple (laughs) of weeks ago over in not so sunny boston um and i know that you guys have a kind of an approach you know not dissimilar to myself in terms of active and uh kind of a dynamic and maybe a bit of a psychosocial approach um, to back pain as well. So why don't we, uh, these these kind of chats that I have are always quite organic. So why don't we start off organically, um, just thinking about what is the kind of, where do you see the current state of play of working with people with back pain? What, what's, what's important? What's less important? That kind of thing. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I feel like I have my foot in like multiple different uh, arenas. So one is being kind of in this scene of people who are really interested in being up to date on current research in this in this area. And that side of things is super encouraging when we start to see more recognition of, you know, people questioning kind of traditional explanations for why symptoms arise and traditional treatment approaches to it and recognizing that, like you mentioned, some of these psychosocial things it really ultimately comes down to uh, behavior change and, and altering people's learned responses to these things um, as far as how they're going to be able to manage and live their lives uh, uh, with with symptoms that are so common. Uh, but outside of that bubble, which is the really encouraging place, um, sometimes outside of that, you know, when we're out doing our barbell medicine stuff, trying to get more people meeting physical activity guidelines, in particular, trying to get them to resistance train, anytime somebody sees somebody, you know, lifting a weight, uh, there's uh, automatically just this huge list of comments on the post about how that has to be bad for your back or that has to be, you know, if one day they're going to end up needing spine surgery or these really like catastrophic assumptions about what something like resistance training, which we know has profound health benefits that we're trying to get more of the population to engage in. It's just inherently tied with this perception of threat, which we also know is then tied with experiencing pain. Um, and then outside of that bubble, when I'm in my medical practice bubble, both inpatient and outpatient, you know, that's where I see the, the least educated people in general about this stuff. Um, this is where everybody's coming in just mortified, particularly if I'm seeing them like in the emergency department, obviously, for back pain. And I've seen lots of people in the ER for nonspecific back pain. But also, given my practice setting, I also see all the, you know, all the things that we get taught to look for and rule out as really yeah. bad things. So the abscesses and fractures and and uh, and tumors and all those kind of things, I see all that stuff there, too. So I have to stay super vigilant in that setting while at the same time not feeding into kind of this catastrophic kind of public health mindset towards uh, the spine as being some sort of like uniquely vulnerable, uniquely fragile structure. Um, and while I'm trying to get people to exercise more and particularly lift weights, because that's what is going to prevent them from prevent me from needing to send them to a nursing home one day if I ever come across them <laughs> in a medical care setting. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I, I think what what you've kind of brought up there is one of the biggest issues that we see in back pain today which is people's perception of the body, people's perception of exercise and what it does and uh, and how kind of that feeds into back pain. And I think that sometimes when we think about the biopsychosocial model, that really the biopsychosocial model, um, that kind of, although it doesn't give us an answer to these factors, um, it does kind of help us understand why we see such challenges in healthcare is that we have these societal messages around pain, we have these societal messages around what exercise is good for, what it's bad for, how the back is designed, etc. Um, and, and I think this is one of the biggest problems that we're dealing with, uh, what, what we're dealing with. Um, how do you see that from kind of a medical doctoring perspective? You know, because we can talk about it from kind of more of a physical therapy perspective, but it'd be sure. really interesting to hear about that from from more of a, a, a medical and MD perspective. Yeah, there's there's a pretty substantial disconnect, I would say, because there's not a failure of, of information or, or um, in other words, like, you know, clinical practice guidelines, even in the medical world um, are 
pretty good. In other words, they, they, you know, suggest a lot of the things that we would recommend avoiding early imaging, you know, assessing for the, what, what they call the quote unquote yellow flags, meaning these like psychosocial risk yeah. factors, assessing stuff like that. Um, you know, a lot of that comes into play and, and it's, and it's out there. The problem is that the uptake on the physician side tends to be pretty poor. And, and I, uh, I've given a few talks on this and have cited some data on, you know, uh, rates of imaging, both in primary care and emergency settings, despite, practically every professional society saying to not do it um, is just continuing to increase over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and, and, and most physicians, it, the, the frustrating thing for what I see on a daily basis, cause I train residents and I interact with other colleagues. And I think that there's this mingling of, of, of people's kind of lay beliefs that then get disseminated under the authority of their like MD title. So physicians or residents or colleagues who I have, they have all these same like, you know, unfounded ideas that the general public has, but suddenly they're just saying them from a higher position of authority because they yeah. have a degree and suddenly it, 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 it's more harmful when it comes that way. I'll, meet, I'll see residents and, and, and some of my residents or med students, they might find out what I do on the internet and they might see me pulling a deadlift or something like that and they're like, oh, that has to be bad for your back. And it's just this like deep-seated public health, uh, uh, public uh, perception um, of, of some of this stuff, uh, including vulnerability of the spine and perception of threat and all that, that's now just like augmented. It's up a few steps. And so um, that's one of the things I'm really battling is trying to get more of this into physicians' heads. But as we as we know, with behavior change, just giving information is not enough. So I can't expect yeah. that I can I can tell them tell them this information and their practice pattern is going to change. I actually have to, at least with the with the uh, people that I work with and train, have to, you know, be with them in the room and supervise them going through these uh, encounters to actually here's how you talk about this with this patient or debrief afterwards. When you said it this way, I would have framed it this way instead. And that's a time intensive, effort intensive thing that most people aren't going to do. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's one thing. And then of course there's concerns over, you know, legal concerns and stuff like that, that just in case type of testing, because like I said, I've seen lots of tumors in the spine. I've seen lots of fractures and infections and abscesses in the spine. If I practiced in a just in case, cause I don't want to miss model, then yeah, I would be imaging everybody that I, <laughs> that I uh, came across, but I have to draw a line somewhere and, and that where that line of comfort is, is going to vary between practitioners, obviously. Yeah, I think you brought up a really nice point there. Um, I think that's the second time I've said that. So I like the way you brought huh. up a couple of nice Two for two. <laughs> and this was two for two. We're doing well. So this was a discussion I was having with someone recently, a very similar discussion. And I don't think that we can expect uh, physios, chiros, doctors, whatever you are, to be any different from normal human beings. So yeah. behavior change under pressure in work you know, when you're there and you've got a difficult patient, trying to find the right words or trying to do the right thing can be really, really tough. Yeah. And maybe, <laughs> you know, I, I think that we have to remember that environment is often what changes or has an effect on behavior. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever looked at any of the kind of nudging work that, that's out sure. there. And it's kind of creating yeah. small changes in environment and and if we don't actually facilitate environments for people, if we don't change working environments, if we don't support people, can we expect these kind of behavior changes to occur? Yeah, totally. I think that's a that's a big part of it. And and I see that this is a kind of an ongoing discussion, actually, in a lot of different uh, spaces in medical practice. So another example would be, you know, like a um, 
the problems with antibiotic overprescribing, for example, for people who come in with a viral illness and, and people are working on strategies to alter practice patterns, i.e. physician behavior change. How do we get them to stop doing this and identifying what are the root causes? An environment is one, time pressure is one, kind of like social norms among physicians, like kind of the working culture at their local institution, what each of them, the, the, each of the individual physicians practice patterns is. Um, all of this stuff, it's it, behavior, obviously, it's a super complicated uh, um, kind of thing. And if even among your physician colleagues, they all share this understanding of back pain as this, you know, uh, vulnerable spine kind of thing that needs to be, you know, specially protected and, and, and things like that, then that's going to ultimately influence their, their practice. So there's no one angle of attack for this problem, unfortunately. Um, if there were, then we would have fixed it by now. <laughs> yeah, I feel that a lot of, about a lot of problems. If they were simple to fix, we'd have kind of... <laughs> right. Um, right. I, I think this idea of intrinsic belief is a really interesting one. That if we look at exercise, for example, and we kind of, you know, we'll bring up all this data about, you know, scapular positions and knee valgus and, and all these other things. And we'll suggest that, you know, they're not dangerous positions. And we've got the data to say that they're not simply associated with injury or not simply associated with pain. But then if you took 10 physios or 10 whatevers and you asked them to get someone to do a, a knock knee squat, you would probably see that most people wouldn't see that as even though we might suggest it's not going to be dangerous from a data perspective actually in the moment getting people to do these things is, is their intrinsic belief often is that these things are kind of a kind of negative and i think uh, there was a uh, jp canero uh, the brazilian researcher yeah. did some work into intrinsic and extrinsic or well, just intrinsic beliefs around lifting and it's yeah. fascinating we talk about spinal flexion for example how many people are happy to get, I mean, I, I, I'm probably, uh, as you've probably seen from my teaching, I'm probably in the minority here. I'm quite happy to get people doing all sorts of things. Uh, some of them legal, some, no, I'm joking. <laughs> so that, that's my other job. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that we talk about being uh, kind of, you know, freer with our beliefs and freer with our practice are we always able to come overcome these intrinsic yeah. beliefs? Because I, I don't think we're that good at it. No, no, there's, there's, uh, these things can be so deep seated that I know what you mean as far as they're kind of emerging this deep seated uneasiness if somebody's in that kind of a situation. And, and I always point out that, you know, when, there's nothing going on when you're just in some kind of like high level academic discussion. It's really easy to say all of these things. But then oh, when 100%. you're in, in the room with the person and in practice with them, uh, uh, it's easy to just re revert back. Um, it's it's way too easy to revert back when when, you know, shit's hitting the fan, so to speak. And you're actually in the room with the person or, or working with somebody one on one. Um, I definitely deal with this a lot in in. Uh, on the barbell coaching side of things, obviously we tr we we train, we lift, we we pick up sometimes quite heavy things. I've picked up quite heavy things with quite a lot of spinal flexion, and I've lived to tell the tale. Uh, but it definitely raises this this sense of uneasiness among people who are viewing. And then, of course, we inevitably get get like I said the the comments, and then the subsequent social influences of, oh, that can't be good for you. And it's like, well, 
I've trained to do this for quite a long time and and kind of adapted to do it. And it it's meaning that it's taken me almost years to overcome that original deep seated uneasiness that when I started doing this, I had the same thing, too, because that's just the common social understanding. So, you know, that's why I think, like you said, same thing with the having these hard conversations with people. It's easy to say, oh, we just need to, you know, elicit their beliefs and and gently, you know, challenge some of those and get them towards these more positive understandings and get them willing to engage these behaviors and activities that they perceive as threatening. It's like, yeah, super easy to say all that stuff. Now just like do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I, it's it's very easy to post up a research paper that calls into question some biomechanical fallacy or some kind of deep-seated belief we have about exercise but it's quite another thing I think often to actually see people in enact or embody that kind of um, mindset and uh, do you still think we're quite a way away from that if you know if we're being honest I, I think I probably do uh, sorry you broke up a little bit there I think the question is, do I think that we're still quite a ways away from where we want to be? There we that, go. Yeah. Front. We just had a little. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is one of those situations where sometimes I find myself starting to get a little optimistic. And then I realize that I might be in my uh, happy place bubble around <laughs> like minded people who, who are up on this stuff. And then I and then I might go back to, to uh, my real job or or somebody will post a link. Somebody posted a, a video recently on our on our uh, our group. Uh, it was from ESPN, the Sports Center uh, channel of this. I guess he's a he's a football player, American football player, and he was on a bench press, and he had uh, uh, 225 pounds in his hand that he unracked out of the bench press. And rather than and he performed a bench press, and as he locked out the bench press, he actually sat himself all the way up on the bench, like he he sat himself bolt upright right. with 225 over his hand, over his yeah. head. So clearly, <laughs> clearly like freakishly strong guy, yeah. but then. You scroll through the comments and the comments are just an absolute train wreck. And that's what pulls me back out of that land of optimism that we're nowhere close to where we need to be as far as a social understanding of this stuff, as far as neither uh, uh, with respect to just movement in general being inherently safe for people, nor is there a public understanding of adaptability, i.e., you know, because uh, my response to, to somebody who asked a question about the safety of it, I was like, hey, do you think that you'd be able to do this with like no weight or maybe with like a pound? And of course, the answer is yes, they could sit up on a bench with a pound. It's like, well, what if you trained from doing a pound to 10, 20, 30, 40? Maybe that's how this guy got up to being able to do it like that. And people don't necessarily uh, uh, they don't necessarily take into account the process that it takes people to do certain things that instead they just jump to the conclusion that that looks unsafe or dangerous. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of shown in a lot of the qualitative literature that we have around people's bodily perceptions with chronic pain. You know, that they see their they see themselves as being inherently fragile. But also yeah. what's fascinating, and this was from some work by uh, Jenny Setchell and her group a few years ago, they found it was uh, I think they describe people with lower back pain describe themselves as like being a broken machine. And yeah. so that mechanical <laughs> perception of the body and that mechanical perception of the body doesn't really include adaptability. Adaptability right. is an inherent. But, and I, you know, again, this is something that I try and touch upon when I teach that it's an inherent biological thing. You know, that, that uh, biology for me is typified by two things. One is variance. Mm -hmm. We are all inherently variable, hence why I'm six foot two, incredibly handsome. And <laughs> <laughs> all right, that was a joke. People. Um, there's this kind of element of variance, but then there's also the element of adaptability. 
whereby, you know, we we um, that according to our environment again and, and what we do and our actions and our behaviours, um, we adapt. Why do you think that why do you think we don't perceive the body like that? What What's uh, again, is that obviously a societal thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the stories that we're told about this stuff and, and the way we interpret our experiences. So, um, you know, I cite that paper every time I give a lecture on this topic to illustrate kind of the scope of the problem and where where a big part of the problem lies is in our, our social understanding of this stuff. So, you know, I remember, you know, when I was in training, working under some sports medicine physicians and, and I would hear them, for example, we'd have a patient who came in with some some symptomatic like knee or knee osteoarthritis, for example. And they may not exercise very much. They may not, you know, they may have self-limited some activities due to pain. And and then they're told that, of course, they have these bone-on-bone bone joints. And then they're told that because maybe they were a little overweight, they would say, you know, if you lost a pound, that takes four pounds off the knee. That's like the common uh, quote that's given in that context. If you lose a pound, that's four pounds off the knee, uh, implying that more weight or more pressure on the knee is a, is a harmful thing. Um and so then I'm like, well, you're setting yourself up for failure there because then you're trying to get this person exercising. And we know that, you know, and sending loading. them to, to physical therapy <laughs> and loading and <laughs> want to get them to lift weights. And the, and the patient's probably like, this doesn't make sense. It's one of these like inherently conflicting narratives that we see yeah. borne out in the literature, like in a lot of other like in the shoulder and lots in, of other in obesity is a big one yeah. as well. Absolutely. And and it's like if you're delivering these conflicting narratives, then you're not only confusing the patient, but they're probably less likely to buy into your treatment plan, less likely to trust that you know what you're doing. Like this guy told me that pressure on the knee is bad and now he wants me to load up some pressure on my knee. Yeah. Uh, and I think some similar ideas exist out there about back pain and people frame their day to day life experiences through this. So somebody might, you know, try to uh, pick something up. Uh, that maybe somebody delivered a package to their house and they try to pick it up and they feel some uncomfortable sensation or, or they tweak, quote unquote, their back or something like that. And the assumption is it's because they picked something up, um, you know, that they they did it in spinal flexion rather than yeah. maybe because it was something heavier than they had adapted to handle because they're untrained or, or undertrained or something like that. Um, and then they go and they tell their friend that story and then their friend is like, oh, yeah, that happened to me a few months yeah, back. Yeah, a vicarious gets, experience. Gets, gets reinforced. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think things, you know, like with back pain, for example, we uh, if we think about something like osteoporosis, you know, what's the what's the what would you advise, what, Doc? What would you get me to do if I was if I oh, had yeah. osteoporosis? <laughs> yeah, I've read there's there's also some qualitative work on this with respect to kinesiophobia after delivery of diagnosis of osteoporosis, because basically this is oftentimes delivered as a narrative of yeah, your bones are brittle and fragile and things like that, um, and so if if the physician is sharp enough to recommend exercise, they're still going to be less likely to to, uh, be, to be taken up on the patient side yeah. immediately after you told them that you're fragile. And if you move, you know, your bones might shatter and you're going to end up in the hospital or something like that. So definitely not the way that I describe uh, uh, osteoporosis to patients in terms of fragility or basically I try to avoid whether it's osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, uh, nonspecific back pain, et cetera, really and even in the context of exercise, I've talked about this a lot, too, because we, we teach people how to pick up heavy weights, avoiding pairing the education with unnecessary messages of potential threat. That's really what we try to avoid uh, across all of those things. Um, same thing, you know, with like when we're coaching somebody to do a deadlift, um, I don't draw uh, undue or excessive attention to somebody having perfect spinal attention uh, extension, because the more attention I draw to that, I'm like, either either sub, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, 
kind of uh, secretly or, or overtly delivering messages of, of, of threat around if you don't hold this position, something bad is going to happen. So that's really we're just de-threatening activity, de-threatening exercise, de-threatening movement is like the ultimate goal um, uh, in this population. Yeah. So less attention on extension. <laughs> yeah. What you're going to go for. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, and I think, again, our, our, our probably our philosophies are quite aligned here. It's often not what we do. It's the narrative around what we do that's, that's the most important thing. And, and I think this is sometimes where we get tension with exercise and kind of we're going back where we were before a little bit. But, you know, when you suddenly get someone exercising and you throw out 8000 exercise cues, <laughs> what's that saying? You know, we're doing a bodyweight yeah. squat and I've given you 85 exercise cues. I mean, yeah. what what is that? That's is that inherently saying that, you know, this is something that we need to be wary of. Right. Yeah, I think it's saying a few things. One is, yeah, that uh, that you need to be super, super careful about this, because if you don't do it this way, you know, you're at you're, you're at some hurt. degree of undue risk, which is unlikely to be the case. And then the other thing it's conveying is you can't do this yourself. You're a hopeless fool who can't can't do a simple bodyweight squat by yourself. You need me here to fix you, which is uh, not the message that we want to be delivering. Um, and this is this whole topic is one that I find really interesting because it's something that, you know, myself as a coach 10 years ago to now is something I've definitely changed uh, changed on as far as how much I cue, how much I correct, how much I, I do uh, in real time with people. There are certain things because most people that I'm coaching are they actually are interested in some degree their their performance. And so if there's something obvious that they can do to perform a little better, then I might, uh, you know, give them a cue on that. But as far as like try, I, I definitely don't try to minimize movement variability or minor deviations or, or things that are changing rep to rep, things like that. Um, uh, I really tend to let people kind of self-organize, so to speak, and, and just move and, and feel like it's a, kind of give them reinforcing cues of safety that they're doing all right. And, and ultimately, my goal is for them to not need me because, um, you know, I'm not trying to uh, give them this sense that unless they have somebody's eyes on them for every single rep they do, that this is an unsafe activity because that's yeah. more harm. That's a more harmful narrative to be given people about exercise in general. Yeah, I think we often overestimate our technical input and underestimate our motivational input. Absolutely. Um, you, you, because, I, you know, I think mainly if I get someone exercising, you know, if we're thinking about the people who probably need to exercise the most are probably the people that it's not always about how much difference is a little bit of technical stuff going to make sometimes. Whereas motivationally, if I can create a positive experience, yeah. if I can create a safe space for that person to feel comfortable and to enjoy it. I think that's going to have much greater um, crossovers into behavior change than correcting one yes. millimeter or, of kind of knee balance. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and additionally, on top of that, uh, you know, there's a pretty solid argument to be made for allowing that movement variability on multiple fronts. One is in terms of actually learning, learning, you, motor learning tends to happen more quickly. There's some evidence that more movement variability is associated with a decreased risk of overuse injury because there's a bunch of different possible mechanisms for that. Um, and finally, like I would want them to feel safe moving in a whole bunch of different ways and adapt to be able to move in a whole bunch of different ways rather than again, reinforcing this machine-like narrative that you need yeah. to move identically, like you need to be a human piston moving up and down in the squat the same exact way every time, because that's unrealistic. That's not, that's counter to the nature of humans, like you said, variability and, and adaptability. 
Yeah, I mean, again, I actually think when it comes to low tolerance, variability probably has a factor. You know, we we often talk about, you know, other factors around, um, you know, kind of Mark Latash's work and the, the bliss of motor abundance and all those kind of things going against what Bernstein was talking about. Um, but I also think that the whole kind of load factor is also important when it comes to movement variability, that it's a really nice way to naturally spread load across our joints, which, again, yes. is probably a real positive. But um, maybe the, maybe the, one of the factors there is that we've kind of suggested that consistent overload is a mechanism of things like hypertrophy, etc., and potentially we've kind of married up those narratives there possibly whereby, you know, any kind of deviation is a, you know, a lost rep or, or, or something like that. But I don't know. I, I was a big fan of movement variability at one point. Um, I thought I was going to find all the answers. Yeah, <laughs> and we always do. Get, yeah, it didn't <laughs> quite get me there. So, um, so I, yeah, I, I kind of, I got upset with it. I get upset with the things that I can't find the answers to. <laughs> so I heard a really good term the other day um, uh, around the coronavirus, actually. Um, okay. And they called it an <laughs> infodemic, which I thought was quite interesting. Do yeah. you think back pain is a prob- is an infodemic problem? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, really you've also, with me. and, uh, in an analogous way, you hear, you've, you've definitely heard the term like thought viruses, which is effectively yeah. the, the same kind of concept. Yeah, yeah, like yeah this, totally, totally. It's like this, this pandemic of, of, uh, of harmful beliefs with respect to, to back pain. And there's definitely a lot of hysteria going around uh, on the coronavirus front. And I think that, you know, among people who experience back pain, uh, you know, the, the, the social conception of it does tend towards catastrophizing, does tend towards, you know, everybody knows somebody who had spine surgery and had maybe had a bad outcome from it. And that informs their then beliefs and expectations about it. Um, or they know somebody who's suffering with, with persistent low back pain or uh, persistently disabling low back pain. And that informs their beliefs and expectations. And then it just gets, again, just kind of casually spread, like at a cocktail party conversation, somebody would say they tweak their back. And then all of a sudden there's this deluge of information from everybody else chiming in with their own experiences that ultimately it does more harm than good uh, in that in that setting. So I, I, I in, in one of my most recent uh, talks that I gave on back pain to a military uh, population, I came across during some of the, I was uh, kind of uh, reviewing some of my references and, and get, make sure making sure I was up to date. And I came across, I think it was one of Mario O'Keefe's papers about how uh, mass media campaigns are going to be necessary to act to, to try to move the needle on this. And and I know that there, that there seems to be maybe a little bit more of that going on in Australia than there is in the U.S. But I definitely agree, again, not to say that information alone is going to have any effect on its own. But I think that we need to at least get people questioning these ideas before we can start to dive in and, and shift them uh, on a really broad scale. Yeah, we need, I, you know, I, I don't think, I think we need to view it from two perspectives. One being that thousand mile high perspective where we're saying this is a population problem. Um, look at the data. That's what tells it's a population problem. But then all, we need these, we need these large messages, but then we also need to kind of, um, have an effect on everybody that we meet as well. So yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be an either or an or approach. It's going to be an end approach. Yeah. And I think we need to who, approach it from two perspectives. 
Yeah, because people who experience back pain, they might see some of those mass media campaigns and they might say, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. My case is special and different and and uh, it needs, you know, because I needed injections or I needed this or that or the other thing that they might feel that it doesn't apply to them. So definitely the broad public uh, uh, health scale and then the individual uh, side of things are, are definitely going to be uh, real important if we're going to move the needle on this at all. Yeah, I, um, I, I kind of there's there's this common phrase that I see on social media, which is about the pendulum, the dreaded pendulum as um, the dreaded pendulum as as swung so far that, you you know, that it's gone. We've gone so yeah. far away from this biological thing. And actually, I had yeah. uh, in my talk recently at the San Diego Pain Summit, um, I kind of had that in there and uh, like a big a, a big slide on it. And when people actually come into us on a daily basis and start to talk about psychosocial factors, you know, and aren't talking about their bodies being like broken machines, I think then we can start to suggest that the needle is moving on this. Not at the moment. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we're even close to having swung too far on this. Again, I think that's like people who might have that perception are people who kind of are in a situation like I mentioned earlier, where, you know, you're in your you're in the the bubble of people who are actually up to date on this, but not even close to reflecting what's happening in the real world uh, out there, uh, even a little bit. <laughs> so, look, there, you know, and it's it, one of the positive things is that at least we have a bubble. You know, if you yeah. go back 20 or 30 years, you just had individuals, you know, your Gordon Waddell's, your John Luces, you know, these kind of people who who were seeing it from another perspective. Now you're actually you've got five or six people on Twitter. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so so this is cool. But I, I still you know, if we consider it from a population level, I still don't uh, think we're quite there from, from my perspective anyway. So, yeah. look, let's kind of uh, switch gears a little bit and let's say. What do you currently see as best practice um, from your perspective when it comes to helping people with lower back pain? What are the big things that you're trying to do? Yeah, um, I think that on an individual level, the main things I'm trying to do are to assess and get a sense of what the individual's understanding is of their condition uh, and, and what their goals are in their life, what they would like to be able to do. And combining my understanding of those two things, uh, you know, some some targeted education is often necessary as part of addressing the individual's beliefs and expectations about this stuff. You know, what they expect is going to happen if they bend over, for example, and and using some education and oftentimes some, as we say, some kind of expectancy violation in, in real time to try to work them through that. Um, but basically getting their understanding, their expectations and their goals, and then formulating a plan that they can buy into um, as a part of the educational process to work towards that particular goal. And again, this is all assuming we're in kind of the more typical back pain scenario, not best practices, including, you know, ruling out all the horrible stuff that I sometimes see. Um, but from a, kind of a big picture view, that's really what I'm aiming to do is altering people's learned behaviors in a way that is commensurate with them being able to do the things that they want to do. Um, and then, you know, the reason why people behave in a particular way, that's where things get really complicated because that's where their, their, their implicit beliefs and, and their explicit beliefs and their prior experiences and what things they've been told by other people, all that stuff feeds into their learned responses to a particular symptom or something like that. And so getting at the heart of that is really the, the big challenge, getting at the heart of why people believe this particular thing about their spouse about their spine, for example, and then challenging that in a way that actually opens the door to them engaging the behavior, engaging the threat and working towards uh, kind of their goals. And of course, this is 
all of this is is predicated, like I like I mentioned, on getting people toward towards their goals. This is not uh, uh, predicated on. Uh, 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 taking their pain to a zero out of 10, for example, because we're exceptionally bad at being able to do that. There's relatively little, you know, in acute, we know in acute back pain, relatively little we can do uh, to to alter the the kind of trajectory, the time course uh, of that to to resolution in most cases with persistent back pain. Again, our ability to markedly reduce people like the intensity of pain across all people is not that great. Um, and so while for a lot of people, you know, pain uh, uh, mitigation may be their primary goal, uh, sometimes that may be something that we're ultimately unable to exert huge influence on, in which case it's like, okay, then what do we do? We need to get people to be able to live. Um, maybe while some really smart people doing this research find a way to, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, have, a, have a more substantial effect uh, on people's pain intensity. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I you, you know that I kind of agree with that. That it seems that back pain often is kind of it just does its own thing. I mean, if yeah. you go back to the eighties, <laughs> the work by the Norwegian guy Indal, um, Indal, Indal, I don't, I've butchered his name. Um, so he he, you know, he kind of he, he suggested back then if you leave it alone, it tends to do okay. Um, my my belief is that we actually treat back pain at the wrong time. So that I think that we should probably do positive things when you have less back pain rather than trying to kind of work on lots of things while you, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to go after acute pain relief at the top of the peak uh, rather than maybe look at doing positive behaviours and things like that when we're actually getting towards the bottom of the peak when you're probably more able to do them. Yeah. Yeah. And in addition, there's there's another kind of downside to that approach of doing a whole bunch of things when you're at the top of the peak, because then you can get a whole bunch of false like uh, uh, beliefs uh, about things, that things about th- things that work. Yeah. A little confirmation bias that getting this treatment done when my symptoms were at their worst led to them improving when they just kind of got better on their own. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting better from back pain, probably the number one skill that you need is pain self-efficacy. It's an ability yeah. to carry on with back pain but again i think we see that as uh, again that's a societal problem isn't it, it is that yeah. we are we, as, as a society we seem to be moving away from uh pain self-efficacy you know yeah people's people's automatic first belief uh, when they experience something like uh, you know acute onset musculoskeletal pain in general is that they need to rest the area that they need to offload it do less um, with it and of course that's kind of a behavioral response that pain itself tends to reward in some ways as the you know supposedly protective response in many of these situations is to get you to offload and 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 become kind of hyper uh, vigilant and overprotective of the area but there's a lot of downsides to that too so getting people to challenge those ideas and saying even though i have some pain i need to you know keep moving because that's actually i mean i tell like my uh, residents and students when they have when we have somebody with with back pain i'm like there's one thing that you can do to really worsen this person's outcome from acute onset non-specific low back pain and that's tell them to rest or like bed rest or something like that you can tell them to do essentially anything else from a behavior activity standpoint and they're going to do just fine but if you tell them to, to just lay off of it and and don't move don't engage don't do don't, don't live your life then you will have caused harm and that's the thing that you supposedly took an oath not to do so so don't do that <laughs> yeah it does seem to be that it, there, there was a paper a few years years ago that you've probably seen the Chen paper that looked at predictors of, of outcomes for, for lower back pain over five years. And it did seem to be that, you know, most of the factors that are involved, such as low expectation, low self-efficacy, etc. Yep. It does seem to be those that change their lives the most 
tend to be affected by back pain the most. Um, But it's a really hard message because essentially you're almost telling people not to do anything, aren't you? You're just telling people just to carry on with some pain or <laughs> which right. is and, really and... crap medical advice, isn't it? <laughs> to be honest, it's like, yeah. I came to you, Austin, I've come to you because I've got back pain, buddy, and I need you to help me. And you just <laughs> told me to go out there and just carry on, do the same shit and deal with it. Yeah, <laughs> right. that's, that's going to be poor, poorly received for sure. So I think there's definitely a way of delivering that advice. That of course, there's to, a better, but essentially that is in a way the message, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It, and, and I think as it as it should be, the message is, you know, if somebody has a mild, uh, you know, upper respiratory infection, they have a little cold, I'm not telling them to go lay up in bed for the next week. I want them to, you know, try to live their lives as normally as possible. And so I think it's kind of analogous advice in the setting of an acute back pain episode that is similarly likely to resolve on its own within a you know reasonably short period of time. Yeah, I, I think what was interesting about Ben Darlow's recent freeback study, that they had a really broad in- inclusion ca- uh, cat- um, criteria. And what they did is they just allowed anyone with back pain to come on, really. And I think there were some exclusions like hip fractures or some other stuff but the inclusion was really broad and they found that there was a real um that all of the back pain in their study you know we know it's an average so all back pain isn't all back pain but what they found was that a vast percentage 88 percent actually um had a positive time course you know it came down within six weeks even less than six weeks about four weeks and what was fascinating there was that the acute and the chronic seem to behave quite similarly in terms of episodes, which I find really interesting because I think we have this belief that kind of acute back pain behaves in one way and chronic back pain yeah. behaves in another. But Ben's right. study kind of challenges that. Yeah, I think as it as it should. I mean, people, when you when you step back and think for a second about our, our labeling of these things and dichotomizing them of acute versus chronic at this magical time point, um, as if something changes between, you know, the day before and the day after the cutoff. That's to midnight. Yeah, exactly. Oh, now it's suddenly, suddenly it's chronic. And and these distinctions are quite arbitrary um, as are many kind of like cutoffs, uh, diagnostic cutoffs in, in medical diagnosis, for example. And, 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 yeah, yeah, and and, it, and it, even if you just shifted it a little bit, a little bit in either direction, you're going to alter, you know, a lot of the ways in which you interpret the data that you get. Like if we suddenly decided that acute back pain uh, uh, is only back pain that's been around for a week, and after a week it's suddenly chronic, that would change our whole conception of this stuff. Or if we said acute is anything less than, you know. Uh, 12 months and chronic is more than 12 months. Again, our, our understanding and our interpretation of the data is going to be different when it comes to like individuals, behavioral responses, like you're saying, if we're telling them to go on living their lives, this is another one of those situations where those kind of implicit beliefs come into play. And they're really important because similarly, it's really easy to say this stuff, but it's very different when people are having, you know, uh, when you or or you know a, a patient is having quite sometimes quite severe uh, onset of acute low back pain, they may know all the stuff that that you've tried to teach them. Um, let's say we do a great job disseminating this information. They may know all this this these, this important information about this, but then when they're in the throes of severe pain, again, it's really hard to put this stuff into action. Um, and I deal with this a lot in some of the lifters that I work with. And and really, like the first time they deal with this is usually the hardest because they're like, I know all this stuff, but this hurts so bad. This is terrifying. So it could be this. I could have herniated this, et cetera. And working them through that um, is really remarkable 
remarkable to see how upon any subsequent uh, uh, symptomatic episodes, um, it, it's quite, it can be quite substantial for some individuals how much that the um, kind of the, the gain in self-efficacy from having gone through it once and learning this stuff and seeing how it works when you put it into practice, um, how much more effective that can be for them. Um, so a similar situation where easy, easier said than done for a lot of people, even if the knowledge is there. Oh, I mean, I am the worst catastrophizer. <laughs> I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be upfront and I'm gonna be honest. I will, you know, I, I, ha- I, I woke up the other morning with some back, and I'm like, you know, I, <laughs> it, it's, I, I calm down, but I, I sometimes think even as much as we, we know and as yeah. knowledgeable as we are, sometimes our uh, subconscious or our kind of emotional brains, you know, yes. get better, <laughs> don't they? And they overtake and they kind of you know, get in there. I had a slight cough this morning and of course I had Corona. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, look, I have been, um, you've stroked all my biases today. Austin. Um, I thought you usually have to pay for that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I thought you were going to throw in uh, a load of kind of discogenic stuff, but you didn't. So you've, uh, so you've done well for me. Um, yeah, I don't use that word. So <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm only messing. I, I knew that you were, you were my type of bat guy. Um, yeah, good. So look, it's been great to get your perspectives from kind of a different medical system, from a different medical profession. Um, so that's been awesome. Uh, thank you for tickling my biases. Um, and I will catch up with you at some point soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Great to talk. All right, buddy. All right. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.